Greetings, Internet. Uh, you are listening to Breaking Change, a new podcast by Justin Searles about software development, tech news, video games, and just generally whatever else is going on. My name is Justin Searles, and I'll be your host for this week, uh, as this is uh, the first episode. If I do a good job, maybe they'll keep me around. Uh, so if you receive a survey at the end of the call, I hope that you will rate my hosting five stars. And if you don't think that I deserve five stars, I hope that you will quietly keep that to yourself. Uh, so uh, first episode stuff, you know, we got to just get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. Uh, and that looks like talking about what's the schedule of this show. What's the format? Why are we here? Uh, so, you know, if you, if you ask somebody for advice on starting a podcast, the first thing they say is the last thing we need is another podcast by a middle-aged white guy in tech. Uh, and, uh, uh, they would be right, but also, uh, the internet's really big and it can fit a lot of RSS feeds. And I got a lot of, uh, impulse to, to, to make mouth noises come out, uh, and, uh, for them to be available, to be listened to, if not listened to, I don't know, uh, if you're there right now and you're listening to this, thank you. But it's, it, you know, I'm mostly here because I, uh, uh, my lung and mouth muscles need to get some exercise. Uh, and so, uh, hopefully the stuff that I share is useful. Uh, but anyway, that, that that's, that's so, so, so piece number one of advice. Don't be yet another middle-aged white guy in tech thinking that his thoughts matter. Don't worry. I'm, I'm pretty sure mine don't. Uh, but you know, everyone's got to pass the time somehow and, and you've got pasta to cook or, a, or, or a dog to walk. Uh, so you just need something to fill those ear holes uh, so that you don't start thinking about existential dread and uh, your place in the universe and uh, how we're all going to die someday. Anyway, second piece of advice, though, the number two that people give you is uh, consistency. If you want to build an audience, if you want to have a successful podcast, you got to have a consistent release schedule so that listeners can predict when your podcast is going to land in their feed and they can get, they form a habit of, Oh, I listen to, you know, my friend Len Testa, uh, his podcast, the, the Disney dish lands every Monday morning. It's the first thing I see every week. Uh, and I always listen to it on my Monday, you know, uh, uh, workout when I'm, when I'm lifting weights. So that's, that's the second piece of advice that, that I got. And so when we talk about the schedule for this show, uh, you can expect a new episode at exactly the moment you least expect. I'm, I'm going to do these when I do them. Uh, you know, if I don't have anything to talk about, I'm not going to bother recording a podcast because I'm not going to feel like it. And why do something if you don't feel like it, says me. <laughs> from my from my place of relative privilege and also just not wanting to waste my time or your time. Uh, so if I've got something to talk about, then uh, maybe I'll cut a podcast and it'll pop up in your, th in, in your feed here. So that seems simple enough. The, the schedule is, uh, uh, you know, it's consistently inconsistent, which, you know, is kind of following that advice, I suppose. As for format, well, you know, it'll probably sound kind of familiar. You know, each episode will uh, I, I, I kick off and I'll share a little bit of a life update uh, and so forth. But one thing that's different about this show because it's called Breaking Change, every time I do an episode, it, I'll kick it off with a major version bump and uh, announce what the breaking change is for, for this uh, time in our lives. And as this is, I guess, version 1.0.0, .0, .0, got to semantically version our podcast episodes. Uh, 
Uh, this episode's breaking change just marks the initial release of the podcast. So it didn't break anything except for your expectation that Justin Searles doesn't have a podcast uh, and, and, and subsequent episodes, version two and so forth. Uh, I'll have to think of, hey, what was the breaking change of the week or the month or the quarter? Or, or you know what? This could be like everybody's blogspot <laughs> blog, you know, or WordPress blog where you, 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 you post the first post and then a month passes and then you post a second post about, hey, how, you know, I haven't forgotten about you yet. I'm, I'm going to post more and then and then there's no more posts. It could be that kind of thing, too. There's a lot of that going around. Uh, uh, in fact, you know, oddly enough, I recorded an episode of Breaking Change with a couple of my colleagues uh, five years ago, six years ago, uh, Jason Carnes and Neil Lindsay uh, from Testable. And we loved the name uh, and, and we recorded it and it was kind of a silly, irreverent thing. It wasn't super work related. Uh, and we decided not to publish it because we didn't we weren't prepared to commit to the cadence that we would need. And, and, and it was just a lot of work to edit and stuff, especially when you're trying to coordinate schedules and multiple speakers. So we didn't release it, uh, but yeah, breaking change. Here we go. Uh, all right. Uh, in terms of format, right? So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what's new in my life. Well, things, things that are happening, you know, not to be totally vain, but if you know me, maybe you're interested. And if you want to get to know me, uh, here, that's one way to do it. I'll also follow up um, on anything since last the, the last release <laughs> uh, and and share what I've been working on since then that you, that you might be interest, interested in. Uh, my buddy Aaron Patterson, you might know him as Tender Love on the internet. Uh, man, Tender Love. That's the guy who should be on radio. This is Tender Love. Um, maybe just some just late night jazz records. I don't know that Aaron listens to jazz. I should ask him. But anyway, okay. So Aaron is infamous for being a talented punter. Uh, and my wife, Becky, uh, when she hangs out with Aaron, she frequently gets annoyed with him because he will stare through her while she's talking because you can just tell his brain is constructing puns. Uh, and then uh, after she's finished telling a story or whatever, a, uh, uh, you know, a, a fully satisfied Aaron will just emit a pun that has tangentially nothing to do with whatever the conversation at hand is uh <laughs> sorry aaron but you know he's actually gotten a lot better at that so anyway i have asked uh my, my my dear friend aaron patterson to share a pun with me for each episode that i cut and he's uh texted me the pun a couple days ago because i thought i was going to record uh and it's uh yep i'm looking at it now and it's an invisible ink so uh he sent it an iMessage with invisible ink so i'm going to read aaron's pun each episode and I'm going to uh, put it in a spreadsheet and I'm going to rank Aaron's puns. Uh, so, so the, the pun that I share this week will be the number one Aaron Patterson pun thus far because it's, it's the only one in the list, but, but that's going to become a more competitive thing and we'll, we'll rank them and I'll, and I'll, 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 I'll tidy them up or tally them up and figure out, you know, that keeps him busy. Also, you know, uh, everyone, everyone loves to hate a pun. All right. Uh, after, after the pun time, we'll, we'll get onto the news. You know, it might be Apple news, tech news, generally programming news, more specifically, uh, uh, gaming, whatever, whatever, uh, links and stuff have, uh, uh, crossed my desk. You know, only the, only the, the news that's fit to pontificate about, uh, into a microphone. Uh, uh, I'll share my perspective on those things. And, uh, you know, probably close out that section with, you know, 
recommendations, stuff I'm reading, uh, 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 games I'm playing, shows I'm watching, that kind of thing, movies I liked, etc. And then finally, finally, last but not least, I'll read some mail from you listeners. Uh, uh, if you send an email to podcast at surls.co, uh, if you're listening to this and you don't know how to spell surls yet, uh, I'll learn how to pronounce it someday, by the way, cereals, surls, I'll, I'm still getting there. So no, no shame. If you don't know how to spell it, uh, uh, again, Becky, my wife, she, uh, uh, you used to be a teacher, uh, in, in a classroom setting and, you know, first day of school, you always have to teach the kids your name. And if it's not an obvious name, you got to come up with like a whole like motif or something. She would say, uh, it's, it's spelled like pearls, but, but with an S instead of a P. So the, uh, podcast at pearls.co, but, but just remember to change out the P for the S. And if you type it every time pearls.co, and then you just backspace seven or eight times and then you, and then you hit, uh, delete and then you type the s that's how you know you're doing it right so i, I make sure every time you type my name you, you you type it out pearls first and then you just backspace five times hit back uh, excuse move left like cursor left five times then hit backspace and then hit hit s um uh, that way you can be confident because some people they love sneaking in an extra e right before the terminal s so s-e-a-r-l-e-s and it's been, it's been having my whole life and I've never met one of those surlies, but I don't want to because the number of forms that I've had to fill out twice uh, or, 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 or medical records that went lost because uh, they were they were tied to the wrong. The wrong person. Uh, yeah, so it's where was I? Oh, right. Yeah. Why do you need to know my name? So that you can send an email to podcast at surls.co. And, uh, I, of course I don't have any this week because, uh, I didn't even know I was recording a podcast until just now. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, you send something, uh, I, I will answer your question on the air. And, uh, if no one sends anything, I might just have GPT four generate some fake fan mail. Uh, and so if the questions sound weirdly complimentary of me, be suspicious send me your hot takes. Just send me hot takes. Yeah. They don't even have to be questions to so say, Hey, I saw this and it sucks and I'll read it. And then I'll react to it <laughs> with my own take of whether, uh, the thing that you think sucks sucks or whether I think you suck for thinking the thing sucks. Um, and, and, uh, maybe if we're lucky, we'll find some positive reframe along the way. So since this is a solo podcast, you can go ahead and just expect this to be a little bit weird. Uh, maybe you listen to a whole bunch of solo podcasts. I only listen to one or two. And th th it's as a format, I mostly listen to panel shows. You know, Accidental Tech Podcast has uh, three hosts and they're always talking. Or an interview format show like uh, Daring, Daring Fireball, John Gruber talk show. It's always John and a guest. And those are interesting. But the format to me has always been a little bit too rote and a little bit too like the pacing of it. It, it, I, Hey, don't get me wrong. I listen to a ton of podcasts like this, but I was actually afraid to listen to a solo show. Cause I thought, man, this is just going to be one person's voice echoing in my head. I don't know that I want that. And, uh, depending on the person and depending on the voice, maybe you don't want that. So, so, your mileage may vary. You know, you might listen, you might not have even gotten this far. And if you, if you haven't gotten this far and you're still listening to me, uh, I'd be impressed, but 
What I have found that I like is that it, being solo on a podcast uh, as a listener, there's an opportunity for pregnant pauses, for interesting diversions, for coming, you know, uh, uh, cohering here and there and going back and forth and uh, having a, here, here's a way to sum it up maybe, is I feel like I'm voyeuristically witnessing a dialogue on an interview show or when th- several panelists, you know, are, are talking to each other. But when I listen to a solo podcaster, I feel like I'm in dialogue with them. And it makes me feel a little bit less alone. Um, it, you know, the, 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 the person I'm thinking of right now, the, pe- the, the solo podcasters I've listened to, they don't know me, you know, um, but I feel more of a connection to them and I feel more, I think, stake in the things that they're talking about than if they were, they were just chatting with somebody else. And so, you know, maybe you'll get that out of this. Uh, one difference is that I don't have a huge following, so you can just like shoot me an email at podcast at surls.co, uh, which is like pearls, but with an S instead of a P, uh, if I, if I hadn't mentioned that already. And, uh, I will actually like read a hundred percent of the emails and I will reply to 99% of the emails. Uh, so if I don't reply to your email, it does mean that you're the only email that I didn't reply to and you should feel bad. Unless I got super famous and you're listening to version one of breaking change years later. Because then the, 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 the calculus on whether or not I can reply to every email may have changed. Uh, I doubt it, though. I'm a, you know, I like to keep, it, keep things tight. You know, a nice small following. That's my jam. You don't want to go too mainstream. You know, got to be sub pop. All right. So that, well, I, you know, uh, let's dive in, I guess. Uh, all right. So what's new in life here in sunny Orlando, where it has been gray and cold for the last month uh uh recording to this for you in early january and i am ready for some sunshine i am uh uh sick of this freezing cold 65 degree fahrenheit weather so if you're in the rest of america uh or most of the northern hemisphere uh, that probably sounds ridiculous uh but i have learned that i apparently have no brown fat left uh uh brown fat i i think is it, it I watched a Vox video, so I'm an expert on this now. Uh, brown fat, I think, is the uh, fat cells that keep you feeling warm even when you're cold. And babies have a lot of it. And that's why babies do a good job surviving the, the, the travails of, of sledding trips and building snowmen uh, and bouncing around outside uh, in, in the snow. And when you go to a warm place, that brown, those brown fat cells, I guess, I, um, shrink or something and they provide less warmth. And so that's why when people move to Florida, uh, within a couple of years, they're walking around in their, you know, sweatshirt with a, with a, with a windbreaker and a, and a, and a winter coat and stuff because it's 60 degrees out. So the, the idea now of me going up to like, you know, someplace snowy, like a ski resort or, or Maine or the upper peninsula of Michigan in the winter is just terrifying. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do it. So what's, what's new in Florida? Um, uh, I mentioned Len earlier, Len Testa. He's a, uh, uh, runs a company called touring plans, has a podcast, Disney dish. He's a, uh, longtime author, I think 20 years, 20 editions of the most popular Disney related tourism book, the unofficial guide to Walt Disney world. Uh, a fascinating guy. You, you wouldn't believe it, but he's actually, uh, 
mostly interesting for non-Disney related things. Yeah, fascinating fella. Uh, great software developer, uh, runs an awesome team uh, at his company, Touring Plans, where they, uh, uh, it's also theme park related. You can subscribe and then it will help you generate it basically like if you're a programmer it solves well it doesn't solve it it uh comes up with as an efficient guesses of as possible for the traveling salesman problem where i am in a theme park and i need to navigate that theme park efficiently uh based on the relative distances of all the attractions that i want to hit as well as the wait times which are variable not only between attractions, but between attractions at different times of day. So they collect a, an absurd amount of data, and then they have a whole bunch of number crunching algorithms that go up into the cloud and try to provide the best guess for what is a um, provably NP-complete problem. Uh, or NP-hard. I can never remember in algorithmic complexity class the difference between NP-hard and NP-complete, other than the complete is more more hard. So I think they should have gone with NP-extreme, you know, if... Uh, Turing or Von Neumann or whoever was like a better marketer, but there you have it. Anyway, I had line over. Uh, we made some curry rice. Uh, so I made curry rice, uh, you know, four pounds, of uh, uh, chicken, four pounds, of onions, a couple pounds of potatoes, a couple pounds of carrots, uh, some, some, some golden curry, Japanese curry roux, uh, uh, Japanese curry is, is a favorite because it's, uh, not only tasty, but like most things in Japan, it seems like they t- they would appropriate or take one piece of another gigantic culture. Like a, you know, there, how many types of curry are there in Southeast Asia? Probably, but uh, you know, as it, it, if I were, if again, I'm just gonna say things that I believe are facts that I've learned. But then as soon as I realize, oh shit, I'm recording right now, somebody's gonna have evidence that I'm wrong. Uh, I backtrack. So as far as I know, the word curry basically just means like sauce or stew or spice, you know, Um, and and it it could mean any number of flavors. And if you've gone to Indian restaurants, I'm sure you had lots of different types of curry or Thai curry, you know, yellow and red and green and masaman and all that. Well, in Japan, like curry has a distinct flavor. There's one, two, three, kind of like these are the Japanese curries. And there's a bottleneck effect because like curry pots were, you know, maintained in naval ships and every, every sort of naval ship had a different kind of curry blend. And then that's just a handful of types of flavors. And then there's another bottleneck effect in the post-war period as they started to mass market like S&B and other companies. Uh, Ajinomoto, I think, probably makes one. Uh, and so there's really just like, like oh, when people say curry in Japan, they really mean just that curry. And even if you're in Japan, you go to a Nepalese restaurant uh, or an Indian restaurant that has like lots of kinds of curry, they all kind of have that like distinctive Japanese curry f- taste. And for whatever reason, probably because I was there when I was 20 years old and that was my first introduction to eating curry regularly because uh, it's a great dive bar food. That's the curry that I like. Um, so you, 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 you serve it up. It's a sloppy stew, you know, uh, it, it, big brown stains everything as soon as it touches it. Uh, uh, greasy, <laughs> super healthy, I'm sure. Uh, I guess when most people think Japanese food, they think like, oh, it's, you know, uh, uh, raw fish and like, you know, healthy stuff. This is not healthy. Uh, so you, you, yeah, you take a bowl, like a flat bowl, a short bowl, you put some rice on one side, you kind of make a little mound and then you pour the curry on the other side. And then it's like a game similar to the, uh, American tradition of, I've got a certain number of tortilla chips and a certain amount of salsa. And I want to time, <laughs> I want to 
you know, very carefully allocate the salsa so that I've got just the right amount of salsa for every chip so that I finish the salsa and the chip simultaneously. And you don't end up with the classic hot dog, hot dog bun problem of those not mapping up. Uh, so, so you have a certain amount of rice, a certain amount of curry, and you use a spoon to eat it and you just try to mix just enough. You take a little bit of rice, dip it in the curry, scoop up some curry. And there you go. So anyway, made some curry for Len. What else is going on? Uh, well, one big change is Becky and I have decided after, whoa, 16 and a half years of marriage, 20 years dating. Is this our 21st year dating? No, 20th. Yeah, we're, so we're right around 20 years dating. Taking our relationship to the next level. And uh, I'm scared. I'm not sure if we're going to make it. But, but I'm hopeful. And that is that uh, uh, I am building her some software for her new business. Uh, she has a, a fitness business uh, called Better with Becky. Uh, and uh, the first module, Build with Becky, uh, is, is about to become a, a sort of, well, I, I won't speak to it, but she needs some software to facilitate that business before we launch. So we're, I guess that makes us, the fact I can't tell you about it means that we're in stealth mode. But, you know, if you know anything about building software, if you've got experience building software, there is the, the implementer, which is me. I'm the developer in this case and the designer. And then there's the product owner or the business. And it's up, it's up to her to uh, uh, give me the requirements and tell me what she needs to, uh, uh, to build. And up to me to, uh, as a lifelong consultant who helps people <laughs> deal with the uh, uh, frustrating, confusing, just bizarre world of building super complex, intangible, invisible, you know, goods, uh, that is software. Uh, I'm, I'm shepherding her through the process and we just had a good kickoff meeting this morning where I kind of shared the, the, the imagined architecture of the first app of two that I'm building, uh, for her. And, uh, yeah, it's going great so far, but you know, push comes to shove, you know, we've got a deadline in place. Uh, that's an extrinsic deadline. If you're picking a deadline, so all look, I've been on the phone with so many people who wanted to build some piece of software, usually a non-technical person or a person who's no longer in a technical role, you know, in my capacity as like a salesperson of a consultancy at test double, if I'm on the phone with you and you want something built and you know that I'm a vendor who wants to charge you money to build the thing, you as the person who wants something built are going to be kind of cagey, right? You want to, you know, if I, if I, because trust isn't there yet. If I ask you, all right, customer, tell me about your extrinsic constraints. What are you, what, what, what pressures are you or your business under so that I know those constraints and I can factor those into how we approach working with you? in terms of how many people you need, when we'd start, you know, give you an idea of how long things might take and so on. And that means basically almost always, what's your budget and how much time you got. So you ask these questions and they always get interpolated through the thin membrane of low trust relationships, because, you know, this might be the first time that he and or she and I have ever talked. And what they hear is, all right, they're asking my budget, and that means I should give as low a number as is feasible to indicate that I don't want to pay a lot of money. Because if I tell them 
$10 million. They'll say, oh, wow, I, I found a way to build this for you for $9,999,000, right? They don't want to get screwed. And most, most software agencies will screw you. Test Double will not. So you, I don't have sponsor reads on this podcast, but if you go to Test Double, as if we test two times, dot com, you can learn more. The You just don't get a straight answer if you ask a, a prospective client, hey, what's your budget? So they want to be cagey. They, you know, it becomes one of those like uh, uh, a game where everyone's kind of like pushing back and forth and trying not to say something because they want the vendor to say what the price is going to be as if there's just a fixed price things take or not a fixed amount of time things take. You'll ask about, hey, what's the deadline or like when do you need this by? They'll always say yesterday. They'll say yeah, as soon as possible. I'm like, no, no. What I mean is at what point will there be like some consequence if this thing doesn't exist? Maybe, you know, the opportunity cost of a new trade show or something like that. If you're not ready by that date, then you miss out on the subsequent sales season. And maybe that you could quantify that. Or maybe uh, if I don't upgrade this, this dependency and it goes end of life and it goes down, then this creates this legal liability or, or maybe uh, continuity operations or something like that. So all that good stuff, I am now baby birding to Becky as my product owner to try to suss out of her uh, what, what I need to make informed and useful decisions about like how to prioritize uh, and uh, what kind of architecture is appropriate and all that stuff. And so I'm going to be sharing probably some of those things as we go because uh, it's a great uh, opportunity to kind of reflect outside of, of that relationship, just you and me. I don't know if Becky's going to listen to this. That might make that complicated. If so, hey, Becky, I'll just tell you when to fast forward, Becky, okay? Everyone else, you can keep listening. So yeah, currently building two two apps for her. Hopefully, we can kind of keep things cordial <laughs> uh, and we get along well, and it's a good opportunity for me to practice having fun. Uh, all right, so uh, let's get into follow-up. Uh, you know, obviously don't have anything to follow up from version zero of this podcast because I didn't record one, but... I'll, I'll share some recent stuff that I did. Uh, and this, this will all be in the show notes. I think I earned a sip of water there. If you, uh, excuse me, I decided that I was going to take a sip of water in the middle of a sentence because I am a seasoned radio guy. And I know that what the people want to hear is weird spicy bubbles and gurgling gulping sounds while they're you know taking their walk so if i can offer that to you anyway follow up uh last month i i I did a youtube called uh secrets of great conference talks it's a top 10 style video uh, it's got a, a lot of stock videos in it, so it's fun and 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 upbeat. But basically, you know, this was a, me reading from a script saying, "Hey, you know, these are the ten things that I think about when I'm either uh, uh, formulating the idea for a talk, or proposing that talk, or designing it, or practicing it, and uh, uh, trying to relay some advice. Mostly stuff that people tend to not talk about or think about very much." But as I've become uh, more uh, distinctive in my own predilection and style around conference presentations, I thought, hey, you know, maybe I could highlight some of the the weird things I do and why. So you might want to check that out. I don't know. 
The other uh, uh, piece, it was kind of a New Year's resolution post, I suppose, <laughs> uh, is actually about how goals don't work, so don't bother setting them. Uh, it's called Only You Can Give Meaning to Your Career, uh, and that's over at Testable's blog. Uh, basically, you know, this goes hand in hand with conference talks, but conference talks for me were one way for me to not think about it. Like, I, look, I would never set a goal saying I'm going to do a conference talk this year and I'd work with my manager to like identify conferences and I'm going to, you know, submit to five of them or whatever. Cause as soon as I write down a goal, especially when a manager is telling me that I have to have goals, I would always, you know, hem and haw about it. I hate doing the work of like writing the goal and make sure it's smart, right. Or, or rumba, like whatever the, or an oak fit into an OKR framework, whatever it is. And then I, there'd be a multiple review sessions with the manager to make sure that like, okay, we're on the same page. These are your goals. I approve these goals. As soon as that happened, I would lose all motivation because the work was in setting the goal. Like I want the manager's approval for the, their expectation. And it takes so much effort and energy just to get on the same page about what the goals are in advance that all I've really done is create for myself something to now dread. <laughs> I feel no motivation because the intrinsically, like any, any energy or gusto that I had went into defining the goal. And now as soon as that goal is defined, I've got like, you know, it starts an 11 month, 25 day counter until the goals are due, right? The, your annual goals, you got to get them done. And now I've just got this thing I'm dreading that I don't feel intrinsic motivation for anymore. Cause I just had a big back and forth about how I was going to measure it and, you know, how I would tie back to strategic objectives or whatever. And, uh, uh, so not only am I dreading it, that means like I'm distracted from other stuff because I feel stressed or I feel guilty when I don't spend time on it, even though like, you know, it's these goals usually have nothing to do with like whatever the primary job that I have is. And so that's not really productive. And I think a lot of people, especially a lot of creative developer, deep thinker, you know, empathic folks like I've surrounded myself with over the course of my career, a lot of them feel similarly. And so rather than think, uh, uh, prospectively about what am I going to do in the future and deciding in advance, I think a lot of the best things in my career and my life have come from knowing that I actually, uh, uh, unlike some people, I cannot predict the future. And so trying is sort of, you know, a waste of time. Instead, I pause, I've trained myself to pause every month, two months, three months, and look back and say, hey, what was that all about? What did I learn this month? Or what did I learn this week? Or what was, what really challenged me over the last quarter? Or like, you know, I I'll think back, like, what was the thing I was really stressed out about a few weeks ago? How did that, how did that turn out? Because we all generate these negative fantasies, these worries. Uh, and I think the more introspective you are, the, the, the louder, uh, those worries are in terms of magnitude and frequency of thinking about them. And it's important to remember like 99% of them aren't going to come true. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't worry. I mean, as if you can decide, right? It means you should probably be mindful of the fact that like the act of worrying is the thing that makes it less likely to happen. And so we had to worry well is what I think about. So I'll look back and I'll say, okay, well, I was really worried about this conversation or I was really worried about this conflict and how it would resolve and it resolved. And then, then that retrospective look, right. Is I can look at that or I can look at uh, an achievement or, or uh, something new that I learn. I say, look, what can I take away from this? What about this conflict? What about this bug that I fixed? What about this feature that I developed is totally unlike anything I've ever done before. 
And if I can find something distinctive, something unique to my personal experience so far in my career, I'll highlight it and I'll put it in a little like basket of goods where I I think, okay, maybe it's time for me to plant a flag about this thing. Uh, And I'll, I'll, you know, planting a flag is just a term that I use to mean I want to remember this. I want to remember uh, in 2015, I did a talk called How to Stop Hating Your Tests. And it was one of my most practical talks. It was also kind of like a top 10 sort of thing. Uh, it was it was fun. I did it. <laughs> I built I built the talk in um, System 9, classic Mac OS, <laughs> even though it was 2015 using like Apple works. And it's kind of like a family feud style. So it was all four by three and kind of like, you know, uh, retro pixel art kind of design. But the idea was like, these are the lessons that I've learned from several years of consulting with clients who had very, very late stage uh, uh, test automated test suite problems. And I had identified patterns between them. And I was like, man, like, it seems like every team runs into uh, these infinitely long builds, these these builds of integration tests that just get longer and longer and longer. Uh, And so I would in this talk, I used the opportunity to give a conference talk at RubyConf to kind of just point out those lessons that I'd learned and really, really work hard at crystallizing what was the kernel of truth here. What was the thing that really stood out? And for my own sake, to be able to have like, you know, at the end of my career, I guess I would imagine maybe I often... Whenever I talk about this, I, I talk about the fact I'm not having kids because I think a lot of people look to their kids as their legacy. And, and since I don't have that, but I still have this very large legacy gland, <laughs> I, I think, well, at the end of my career, what do I want to be left behind? What in the leather bound book collection of Justin Searle's shit, what's there? And I think it would be nice based on like say the last three years of, of helping out clients with these really thorny, painful testing problems, it would be nice if I had a planted a flag of that moment in time. Like here's the crystallized version, the, the, um, the hard rock of what this was all about. Uh, and, and done in a way that was, you know, polished up a little bit. Like it looked nice. It was presentable. It was clear. It summarized what it didn't didn't sacrifice the depth or the nuance, and it, it played with the tensions and the trade offs inherent. It's always reflective of the real experience, and whether it's a talk or a blog post or um, a journal entry or 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 I don't know macaroni art, you know, with Elmer's glue. It doesn't really matter what the creative work is. It just matters that I sit with it and that I. I, I mark the occasion somehow. And so that's how I wound up being a thought leader, <laughs> I suppose, is because I really took it upon myself to give meaning to my career in this way. So anyway, I wrote about, uh, about, about that process. Uh, if listening to me talk about it for five minutes was insufficient, you can go check out that blog post. Let's see. Uh, I've got a newsletter. Uh, it's called Searles of Wisdom. To remind you that Searles rhymes with, <laughs> rhymes with pearls, I suppose. Uh, you can see that at justin.searles.co slash newsletter. Again, 
URLs are in the show notes. Look at me like a podcaster referring to the show notes. Uh, I have not yet figured out how to make the podcast XML scheme. I assume that this is just something where it's like a plain text thing and I'll just paste all of my notes into it, but we'll find out. So if the, if I keep referencing show notes and then they don't manifest, please email me at, <laughs> at podcast at Searles.co. And that email at least works. I'm pretty sure that I haven't tested. Oops. Anyway, my newsletter last month was about um, a book that I'm reading called uh, The Courage to be Disliked and what it's like to read books in a foreign language. Uh, so I'm reading that book in Japanese. And what I'm finding is that uh, I don't have enough cognitive capacity to both read the read the book in Japanese and also uh, think very critically about the content that it has uh, uh, throughout it. So I'm finding myself like just fallen for this self-help book hook, line and sinker. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's a good book. Uh, 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 Alfred Adler, he's a German uh, psychiatrist. And this is a philosophy book written in the Socratic dialogue style, which, you know, from Greek, Socrates, from Greece. But it's written by, by a Japanese fellow, two Japanese people. So it's, it, I'm reading the original uh, version in Japanese. So, uh, uh, of course, I'm American. So I just love the cosmopolitan angle to this, that, that, that this particular philosophy had to kind of be, get titrated through a psychiatrist in the 19th century uh, in a format that was developed by the ancient Greeks. There's something kind of poetic about that. All right. Uh, other thing, I just posted this. I, I asked, uh, so I'm not, Ruby Kaigi is in Okinawa, which is the island, you know, you might know it as as having a continuous and very large U.S. military presence since World War II. But it's an island that is quite far away from Honshu and the main islands of Japan. Uh, the indigenous people there, I think, are, are genetically pretty distinct from, from uh, uh the rest of Japan, you know, it, it was, I do not remember when Japan initially colonized Okinawa, but it was like not prehistorical. Uh, and so uh, the Ruby Kagi is going to be down there. I've never been, I've always wanted to go because it's tropical. People live there a, a long time. I hear the food's really good. Uh, it's, it's, it's intentionally designed as a vacation destination. And so, whereas like a lot of Japan has sort of been, uh, snookered into being a, uh, uh, a tourism center, right? It wasn't necessarily designed. Kyoto was not designed to be a tourist city so much, uh, or Osaka for that matter. Like a lot of these are just like normal workaday cities. Like you go to Tokyo, you can have a great time in Tokyo, but it's not like, uh, got a theme park downtown and a whole bunch of attractions to do. Like, like most of Tokyo is just neon lights with boring offices inside of them and sleepy apartments, uh, in this huge urban sprawl. And then we get, you know, we, they get, uh, they receive millions and millions of foreign guests a year. And so these cities tend to get clogged up, uh, by, by just the throngs of, of foreign, uh, visitors and it puts a lot of strain on their infrastructure and their cities. And it's amazing how hospitable and welcoming uh, our friends in Japan are. Uh, but one of the things about Okinawa that's interesting is that its economy has always been, at least in the post-war period, like very much geared around uh, both both serving and interacting with the Americans on that base there. So like from a perspective of a Westerner, uh, English is readily available everywhere. It's easy to get around. 
uh, they're very familiar with people who are unfamiliar with their customs being all over the place. Uh, and so it's a little bit like kind of like unique. Japan is always easy mode, but it's even easier easy mode than that uh, for, for getting around and understanding your way. So, so hopefully if you've been thinking about going to Ruby Kaigi, the kind of preeminent Ruby conference in Japan, uh, uh, but you've been nervous maybe about your lack of Japanese language or like the labyrinthian traffic networks or something like that, Okinawa in particular poses a, a tremendous on-ramp to, to go into Kaigi for the first time. But the other aspect, right, is you know, Okinawa is a, a meant to be a vacation destination, both internationally and domestically. And so there's lots of resorts, there's lots of things to do, there's lots of just entertainment everywhere. It's, uh, uh, it's of course, it's laid back. And so I, I hope that uh, uh, you'll consider coming with me to to Okinawa in uh, it's May 15th to 17th. Early bird tickets are not yet on sale, but when they do uh, come on sale, they will be surprisingly cheap. And uh, uh, at least if history is any precedent, and they do have a, a call for proposals. If you're a speaker uh, or interested in becoming a speaker, uh, uh, that is open until the end of the month. Uh, you know, the Kaigi does an amazing job of being very welcoming to to international guests. So um, they encourage uh, speakers even Japanese native speakers to give their presentations in English if they're able. So they have a, almost always at least one English language uh, talk in, in every track at every time slot. But they also uh, pay for translators so you can get a little earpiece and listen to any of the Japanese presentations uh, with live translation into English. It's all very professional. And, and the activities that they do before and after and the, the, the parties, which you can sign up for online typically and, and, and RSVP a slot are all just fantastic. So go to Kaigi, have a great time, uh, hang out with me, say hi, see Aaron. Um, Becky will be there too. So we're gonna have a party. Uh, uh, Becky and I are actually thinking about taking the ferry from Kagoshima, an overnight ferry. I've never done an overnight ferry before, which I guess is like a cruise, but with less fun. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, now I got to do it. Uh, all right. So I think it is time. Yes. Now it is time for the puns. I'm, I'm going to read this pun. As I hover over the invisible text that Aaron sends me, he sent me two text messages Saturday at 3.55 p.m., both invisible text. I will read them verbatim in as neutral a tone as I can muster, and then you will judge the pun. Two puns, it looks like. Here we go. Breaking Change Podcast, where it's a feature, not a bug. Breaking change? Sorry, I didn't carry cash. I don't carry cash. Oh, let me read that again. Sorry, I've, I've screwed it up. Breaking change? Sorry, I don't carry cash. You know what? Um, I suspect that Aaron intended for the second one to be the canonical pun of the episode because that is much more of an Aaron pun. So let's I'm open up my spreadsheet here. Get it in there. First pun, version one, breaking change. Sorry, I don't carry cash. Uh, I'll let him know that not all the puns have to do with the title of the show. But, uh, you know, sometimes you got to warm up. So here we go. Breaking change. Sorry, I don't carry cash. Number the currently the number one best pun of the program goes to Aaron Patterson. All right. Breaking change puns. Got to save that document. 
thus concludes the pun portion of the episode. Uh, so if you've been, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm always going to do my best to provide a content warning before puns. It's my uh, commitment to you to be as inclusive as possible. And I know a lot of people uh, do not enjoy puns. And so I want to just uh, clear the air and, and, and get them out of here as fast as I can. So, all right. Puns, check. Next up, let's talk some, um, let's talk about some news. Why do I go into crooner voice for like what is to be the most like dun 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 dun, dun, dun news at 11? All right. Well, the big news right now being early January 2024 is that the Vision Pro is coming out soon. Uh, Apple's Vision Pro represents the, in my opinion, the most significant platform release since the original iPhone. They have indicated that just like with the original iPhone, where you know Steve Jobs got on stage and said that his goal was just to sell a million of them, and if they just sold a million of them, it would only be you know a small amount of the market, but <clears throat> really add up uh, in the first year. And they did that, and then they blew it away, of course. And, it, and I think that the iPhone's trajectory was leaps and bounds faster and higher than they ever expected. But Vision Pro seems like they're preparing for the same kind of start small, roll out trajectory that they initially had in mind for the iPhone. So what I expect to happen is Vision Pro is going to come out. We just learned that its uh, pre-orders go January 19th at 8 a.m. on the Apple app, app, Apple Store app. I suspect you're going to need to order it through the app. I'd be shocked if you could order it through the website simply because they got a face scan you, right? Because they've got these little, uh, if you don't know what the Vision Pro is, go find a video. Google it, Vision Pro, and there's a video, and they'll tell you all about it. It's a, it's a don't call it VR, AR goggle that is totally a VR goggle that acts like an AR goggle because it's got a lot of fancy cameras to make it look like you're actually looking through real life. Uh, it's even got a screen on the outside to show your eyeballs so that you don't look too much like a creepazoid, even though you're totally going to look like a creepazoid to everyone around you. But it portends a future, right, where there will be, uh, we're just wearing glasses, just little spectacles, and those spectacles are somehow going to fill up our entire field of vision when they need to, uh, but otherwise we'll see, we'll still be present in the world around us, ambient computing, spatial computing. Uh, who knows where that's going to lead? All I'm confident of is like Apple is going to not let this go and not let it fail. And when you're the biggest company in the world, you can like allow things to not fail by just plowing money and time into them and continuing to iterate, which I say as um, meta uh, <laughs> one of the other biggest companies in the world also plowing tons of money into something that they don't want to allow fail uh, is nevertheless probably doomed to fail because they have no product sense or idea of what they're doing. Idea of what they're doing. I dropped a thing. I don't know if you can hear that yet. I have to, I have to work out the gain on this microphone. Uh, I've never liked it. I have a bad habit of like drifting my mouth away from the mic. Anyway, vision pros coming out soon. I, am I going to pre-order one? Yes. Am I already worried it won't somehow come on delivery day of February 2nd? Yes. Do I have calendar events for that morning of the 19th? Yes. And the night before? Also, yes. Uh, this, is the, uh, this is how I roll with Apple pre-order stuff. So get used to it. I have another product that I actually uh, I bought on my brother Jeremy's recommendation. Uh, called an X-Real Air 2. Uh, this, this product just came out. Uh, last November, the Air 1 uh, was uh, uh, 
I don't know, a year or two prior. And these look like glasses. They look like, you know, goofily thick glasses and Coke bottle glasses. And you just plug in a USB-C cable to them and then they can be a 1080p monitor. You know, that's just uh, mirrored in both eyes. So it doesn't move around, doesn't do anything fancy, but like I can uh, go anywhere I like, you know, if I'm working from um, a club or a coffee shop or whatever, I can take my, my MacBook Air. I, I have an M2 MacBook Air and I can take these X-Real Air 2 glasses. I just plug the glasses into the MacBook. I can turn the MacBook brightness all the way down. And because these have a, a, um, a light blocking shield attachment that I, that I usually keep on, uh, I don't look like a total doofus. I look kind of like a doofus, but I can just sort of stare into space, keep my neck in a neutral position, not jack my neck all up. Also not be strained, uh, straining my vision in like a sunny Florida, you know, outdoor environment, uh, against a, a relatively dim screen with the, the M2 MacBook air has a dimmer screen than the MacBook pro. I think like 500 nits or something. And yeah, it's, it's great. It's only 1080p. So it's not like retina. Uh, it means like my windows have to be kind of like all maximized for me to do anything, but I can code and I can, I can write text so I can get a lot done. So I, I've been using these X-Real Air 2s since November and I've been taking them with me everywhere. And I have something to say to everyone who's about to buy a Vision Pro and then go use it at Starbucks is people are going to think you are a fucking weirdo. So, you know, uh, you could read the book Courage to be Disliked. <laughs> and get over it. Uh, and that's kind of what I chose to do. Uh, you know, I said, Hey, you know, I'm wearing these glasses and I'm staring off into space. It's going to look like I'm looking right at you, but I uh, don't worry. I can't see you. I'm just being a, being a, being a freakazoid. And, uh, you know, people in general think it's entertaining mostly. Uh, of course, these glasses, these glasses that I wear, they don't have uh, cameras on them and the vision pro will be able to take spatial video. So, there may be memes right in the future when this thing comes out. It's like, hey, everyone's just they're stalking you. They're making three D, three D video of you that they're putting on the internet. Uh, of course, the Vision Pro is going to blink or something or try to like show uh, passersby when the, when when they're potentially being captured so that we don't repeat the glass hole incident of Google Glasses, which got over ten years ago, right? Um, I'm sure that uh, Apple's terrified of that, but fortunately for Apple, the vision pro is tethered with a big battery that has to, you have to lug everywhere with you and they're also big and heavy. So they're probably not going to have too many people walking around with these things. So hopefully that's not a real problem, at least in the short term and, and, and the culture around this stuff will have time to, to catch up. So yeah, that's uh, the big thing this month. Um, another, another news item well, it's new to me is I finally got GPT plus I've been using the API and writing a lot of scripts against GPT four, but I was like, you know what? I want to try the, um, uh, uh, I got this new action button on my iPhone 15 pro max, the big one. And I need something to do with this action button. And I would love to be able to just to bind that, to have a version of Siri that did things more, <laughs> more good and talked in better, gooder English. Uh, and, and, and I could converse with. And so that's what I did is I bound my action button to the shortcut for start a voice conversation with the, the official, the official chat GPT app. And that starts a GPT four conversation that not only opens the app and I can talk to it and it talks back to me and it's surprisingly uncannily good. 
but also uh, it uses the live notification. It kind of abuses the live notification where those those notifications where you get like an Uber or a Lyft on the on the lock screen and you're tracking the progress. Uh, those notifications it apparently can transmute audio somehow. And so even though it's not a call, it's not it's not set as a as a phone call or a Zoom call. It's not using that notification API. It's using this this live notification to keep that conversation going even after you've locked the screen. So you can talk to it, you just start the conversation, then you can lock the screen, and as long as you've allowed the live notification, you can keep talking to it. And you can even plug it in, I found, into CarPlay. And I, I literally just, I talked to it the whole way to where I was driving because I was um, meeting friends or having, I was having Len over for Curry and he wanted to watch a movie and I was trying to ask it for, hey, give me some recommendations for movies based on these criteria. And, and we were just talking back and forth about the movies. And it, it, it went great. It's a really cool, it's a creepy because it, you know, GPT-4 is kind of slow. It takes like a little bit of time for it to work up its reactions and its answers similar to my brain or maybe yours. And so we have all these, you know, ums and ahs, affectations in our voice to buy time. And so it does that. It buys time by, you know, stretching things out. It doesn't need a glass of water, which is what I need. So I'm going to go um, move my mouth away from the microphone, drink a little bit of water, and then move it back towards the microphone. We're going to see how this goes. I'll be right back. Okay, how was that for you? Good, I hope. All right. So yeah, GPT-4, um, you know, I tried, the first thing I want to try is always like, can I use this for Japanese language practice? So I talk to it in Japanese and it responds in white guy voice Japanese. And I was like, whoa, that's my thing. And it's got this very thick American accent and it's, and yet grammatically perfect, uh, structured completely, you know, just right on the pitches and the pitch accent is all right. And I was like, what the hell? So I, I went onto the, the, uh, you know, GPT super fan prompt engineering subreddit, yada, yada. And they're all like, oh yeah, well these, these voices were apparently trained in English. And so they don't speak foreign languages natively. They speak them as if they are English speakers speaking the language, which is a fascinating fucked up thing. This is an explicit podcast. I've decided as of, you know, whenever I first said F F word, so anyway, that's pretty fucked. Uh, yeah, you know, I, now that I know I can just like talk to this thing in CarPlay or on my own time whenever I like, I mean, I was taking a walk. Now I'm like, all right, well, conversation partners, you know, so I've made some great friends over the years. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Hmm. So we, we live in Columbus, Ohio. There is a uh, in Marysville, Ohio, uh, Honda has had a plant for a long time. And they have a lot of uh, folks who do three-year tours of duty uh, as Honda engineers uh, uh, who go and they move their families to Ohio. And because of the way visas work, it's very often um, uh, their spouse or often a wife who is not allowed to work. And so they, they're kind of forced out of the workforce to live in America, usually raising kids or something. And uh, we'd run into them at Starbucks all the time. And, and Becky in particular, she, she would go to Starbucks more than me. And so she'd see them and say, hey, uh, uh, Japanese apparent Japanese housewife who's speaking in, you know, what sounds like a Japanese accent. How would you like to, uh, uh, go out every week to, to a Starbucks or something, uh, with my husband, uh, for, so he can have conversation pra practice, which, uh, you know, kudos to Becky that took some bravery, uh, and some trust. 
<laughs> and uh, 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 that's how I got several, a series of fantastic conversation partners over the years uh, of people who had, you know, they were in America, they wanted to learn English and I was in America and I wanted to learn Japanese. Uh, and so I, uh, we'd have, we developed these correspondences and, and now even today, you know, uh, all of them have moved back to Japan. Uh, you know, COVID kind of put a kibosh on this whole system for a while. And, uh, we still text each other, especially like, you know, uh, one of my friends, Junko, she's back in the workforce and she's doing marketing and PR. And so whenever she has a, you know, a product that she needs to, uh, uh, translate into, to English, uh, you know, she'll run stuff by me and I'll run stuff by her. And, and it's wonderful to have this kind of relationship and you learn there, you know, learn about them, learn about the kids. You talk about stuff that they want to talk about. Well, you know, normal people talk about stuff that the other person wants to talk about. I talk about what I want to talk about and then I just kind of gauge reactions. It's uh, my patented conversation style. Uh, you think about that. I, precious experiences. When I was a, uh, an intern at Hikone uh, uh, City Hall in 2005 over the summer leading up to my study abroad semester, my only real, like the only thing that approximated real work that wasn't just being kind of like the designated gaijin for the city, <laughs> it was just like show up at events and, you know, move my hands in a certain way or go on, you know, kind of little field trips. The only real work I did was I led English conversation groups. I had a group of, you know, several groups of uh, uh, older people who were wanting to kind of challenge themselves with English in retirement. Uh, I had uh, a group of uh, you know, high school students who, who wanted to improve their, their English language ability. GPT-4 is already so damn good at taking language in one input and giving it to another, uh, translating it to another, having conversation in any number of countless languages. And of course, for languages that don't have a lot of um, training data, it won't be as good as quickly, but Japanese is right up there, probably in the top five in terms of content on the internet. And it's, uh, are we going to have conversation partners anymore? Will people travel around the world? There's uh, apps. I, I forget the names, but there are apps to find conversation partners. Like, is anyone going to really bother when you could just in, from the comfort and privacy of your own action button, <laughs> have, have a conversation partner at the ready? I don't know. I, I really, I honestly don't know. And this is actually a theme that I'm going to keep drilling into over the course of the next couple of years is I am very interested in as all these AI tools and as like uh, Apple vision with the vision pro, as these things enable stuff like, for example, live translation or the subtitleification of everything around us, it is certainly going to reduce the number of people who uh, want to learn a language or bother to learn a language. And much in the same way that I'm sure that we bred fewer horses because once we had, you know, the, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles, you know, people would just buy cars. And so we didn't, didn't need so many carriages to be horse drawn. And so, yes, fewer people ended up breeding and raising and ca caring for horses, but it's not like horses went extinct. It's not like we just stopped riding horses altogether. It just became a niche because functionally you didn't have to ride a horse to get somewhere. I suspect that's what is going to happen to second language education in, in the world. Uh, you know, it's going to seem silly that we're going to teach kids a foreign language when like, you know, like they could just put their glasses on and have like a universal babble fish kind of translator thing. 
Now, it might someday, 30, 40, 50 years from now, get to the, get to the point where it, not only can you translate language, but you can somehow translate culture um, in real time in a way that, you know, if the eyeballs on the outside of your Vision Pro are fake, maybe it'll know when it when to make certain gestures and gesticulations, you know, appropriately. But like, there's still a big difference between live translation of literal language uh, and understanding and appreciating a context and a culture. And um, you know, even when you translate it perfectly, if you like, we were watching uh, a Japanese language movie, and there were several bits about where like the joke was really like playing around with honorifics, like a, a female character using way too formal, uh, 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 of, uh, of a word, uh, and then having to go down a level and then go down another level and go down another level. And the subtitles in English didn't know what to do with this because we just, you know, we don't have five different levels of politeness with which one can address themselves, uh, or refer to themselves. You know, that stuff gets lost in translation. And I think that the same tools, the same technologies, AI, um, AR, VR, all this ambient computing stuff, the same building blocks can be used to build really compelling tools to supercharge one's ability to learn a language if only they decided they wanted to. And so that's where my attention's at. That's where, like, I, I want to build apps through the Vision Pro. I don't know what I'll build quite yet, but I know it's going to have something to do with, I want to build a toolbox, uh, looking at the APIs that are available, the frameworks that Apple provides, what can I do here? That's going to make me able to learn Japanese more quickly, relate to people faster, commit it to memory, get better at this language, figure out the grammar, whatever it is, and not just go for the lowest common denominator of like live translation services. Cause I'm sure that's going to be talk about getting Sherlocked. That's going to be an operating system level thing at some point. Google's already demoed it five years ahead of schedule, uh, with, with some silly, silly demo that does the live translation, the subtitleification of, of, of your life. So anyway, yeah, working on G GPT four is interesting. Vision pro is interesting. Those two things I think are the, the two technologies that are probably going to be at the core of, what I find fascinating about the, uh, the tech world this year, but who knows, maybe I'll get surprised. Um, I'm just blown away though at the uh, GPT four's ability to make connections that Google has no hope of ever figuring out. So for example, uh, I remembered I, I, my tweezers are, are getting uh, dull because as I get older, I get like more back hair and shoulder hair and stuff. Cause I don't know, being a man with genes that are dying and the telomere is, you know, expiring on them. Uh, all these stupid, like wiry hairs that like, you know, they get under your shirt and they kind of itch you and it's harder to pluck those. So like, you know, my, I got some tweezer man tweezers. Apparently tweezer man is good, but not great. And like uh, the, the tweezers are dull. And I remembered a few years ago, I was listening to uh, uh, John Gruber's talk show podcast and he had a fellow named Merlin man on uh, Merlin's uh, Twitter handle is or was hot dog ladies, hot dogs, ladies. I don't know why I met him in person. I actually spoke at a conference uh, and I, 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 he watched me give a talk once. Uh, he's famous in podcast land, but you've probably never heard of him unless you're listening to this because you're also a resident of podcast land. But anyway, Merlin uh, talked about these tweezers that he loved. They are not, no, no, excuse me. He talked about nail clippers that he loved nail clippers that never got dull. And I, uh, 
misremembered that as tweezers. So I was talking to GPT-4, using the voice thing. I was like, hey, you know, like I need these tweezers that Merlin Mann referenced and uh, in this show. And all I know is that they don't get dull. I first tried to Google this. I Googled five different queries and I got nothing, nowhere, no how, just no, no hope. No transcript was available. I asked GPT-4, like right away, first response. Oh, it's this brand. Here's a link. I was like, what the hell? You know, like, that's what I mean, where I was like, this is really like, yes, you can be a downer about AI and say, oh, this is just a statistical model predicting what the next token or morpheme of language should be uh, one after a time. But like, you know, at a certain point, like, isn't that kind of just what humans are too? (laughs) I'm just in the middle of a sentence predicting what the next sound that I should make out of my mouth is like, these are sort of distinctions without a difference after a certain point, especially if I'm getting, you know, the, the tweezers I want. Oh, and the end of the story, by the way clicking the Amazon link and then going to the store of the people who made the, the, the nail clippers, uh, they do also make tweezers. And so I bought some of the tweezers and I will maybe some follow-up for next time. I'll tell you how those tweezers are. That'll be the back hair update for, for version two. All right. Uh, next up in the news, the, the workflow team left Apple again, left Apple. Okay. So if you're not familiar in 2014, I want to say there's an app called workflow It hit iOS and it let you do stuff that we now know as shortcuts. So you know, you building blocks, you could interact with certain applications. You could do certain, these automations that were like not possible uh, out of the box. Cause there's no something like nothing like Apple script. And certainly you can't just code as a user of an iPhone. And so workflow is really cool. Apple saw the appeal and I think in 2017, they bought it. So Apple bought uh, Workflow, uh, incorporated the small team who'd built Workflow, and then they re-released it to the public as shortcuts. And now because Apple owns shortcuts, it has all these like low-level ties into the operating system that a normal application would lack the privilege for. And Apple in general, the, the, the major cases of it buying apps and then just pushing those apps back out again have been that sort of thing where like, oh, this is cool. This app is great, but it could only be really great if we tied it into the operating system in a, in a privileged way that other apps can't do. The other example that comes to mind is test flight. Test flight was a third party app to like, you know, push out distributions of new applications, but because there's no such thing as a third party app store, it was very like hinky in how it pulled that off. So test flight now bought by Apple and it can distribute, you know, beta versions of applications to testers remotely, uh, wirelessly and, and stuff in, in, in ways that it couldn't have before. Uh, so yeah, workflow became shortcuts. That team has really done a lot of amazing stuff. Uh, shortcuts is it's, it's, you know, it, it's goofy. It's finicky. The UI is, fine. It doesn't respond to key as somebody who writes programming with, you know, a keyboard and words. It's so frustrating to have to drag drop something that itself is like fighting you at every step. And all, whenever I encounter a UI bug and, and, and shortcuts, I just want to throw my hands in the air and just like, give me a freaking terminal, please. Uh, excuse me. Give me a fucking terminal. This is an explicit podcast. I already forgot. All right. So the news though, the shortcut, the shortcuts workflow people have left again and they left again because they want to quote unquote, reimagine how desktop computers work using generative AI. And this I think is really interesting. I think if you think about what's wrong with Siri right now, 
Siri has a discrete number of things it knows how to do and a discrete number of uh, uh, um, I just triggered my HomePod. I don't know if you were able to hear that, but she had opinions. All right. So now as a podcaster, I have to learn to not use the wake words for the, any of the three magical cylinders that we all have in our homes. Uh, an assistant can, you know, like the one that Apple makes. Ugh, I don't, mm. I'll just call it. No. All right. An assistant has like a certain number of inputs. It, you know, you don't have to say the exact phrase to add a reminder with the assistant, but you have to say something like, like maybe there's 20 <laughs> ways that you could phrase it that are more or less hard coded. Like it clearly doesn't know real grammar at a deep level, or if it does, it's very much algorithm, algorithmically, um, divined, you know, there's like, different ways it'll kind of jumble words together until it can find something you imagine like when i imagine um a siri request reaching apple servers i imagine like a, a game of plinko where like your words kind of come in and it bounces around like the little disc bounces around over and over and then it lands in a hole and that hole is this is the function to call <laughs> like the add reminder function or the create calendar event function like there's a discrete number of inputs and outputs and those outputs are the commands what commands do i run for the set of variables that the person communicated by their voice like this is all kind of like just a fancy ivr system like a uh you know a voice operated when you call an 800 number and, and you kind of like say hey, i'm calling about a macbook or i'm calling to buy insurance uh and and it routes you to the right department it's just kind of like that is what my perception of how siri is probably engineered and like large language models blow that out of the water like why would you have a discrete set of possible inputs for humans which have an infinite number of ways that they might communicate something when you could have an llm that could just take has taken every single possible permutation of how humans might communicate about a topic and how they're implemented, how large language models work, right? Is like they emulate the kind of pattern of like a neural net where you take in those unstructured, arbitrary, silly, just diffuse inputs and they kind of go through, uh, you know, the, these stronger ties, weaker ties, these little like imagine neuron synapses almost like just think of it as if it was biology, even though it's not. And it comes out the other end in some way that is eerily recognizable because it's doing all this pattern matching and so forth. Uh, it makes total sense that you should be able just to talk to your computer and have that computer. Like we'd still have the discrete number of actions because software only has a discrete number of features, but having a um, multivariate diffuse, just like, you know, like an unstructured way to form these queries. And then the only thing that the program in the middle has to do, the only thing that the LLM, you know, uh, uh, containing program needs to do is just route. The, the, the answer being asked to that LLM at every single point is listen to the user and then figure out which of your thousand discrete functions that user wants to do. And so I have a lot of hope that that's probably the tree up which the former workflow team is barking. Because if Siri is this screwed up, they have a huge opportunity to make like, what if Siri was good though? 
And they, to start with Mac OS, which is a more open operating system where they can actually do some accessibility automations and so forth. Like I could totally imagine this team a couple of years from now, like just uh, me saying to my computer, Hey, dingus, uh, make me an event for next Tuesday. That looks like this other one and do it after my haircut. And it's going to be at, you know, the Starbucks on Vinland road. And then boom, it's just like there, right? It's unstructured. It's maybe combines multiple requests. doesn't freak out about it. I think that's plausible. And so I think that's really interesting. Next up. So I wrote a Ruby gem called standard in 2018. And what standard does is it configures RuboCop, which is a style formatter and a linter uh, to take uh, to take code and make it a little bit more, well, you know, check for certain safety things and also make the style more consistent so it's more readable. And the thing about standard is uh, if you use standard, you can't change those rules. There's one rule set and it's unconfigurable. And the reason it's unconfigurable is that the act of carefully sweating how do i configure the the which rules to turn on and which rules to set and, and what uh what the style should be all that is like a huge waste of time it's a huge potential time sink especially for people who are like have way too fancy of opinions of uh what what clean code what good code looks like and if you're on a team forget about it because then you're just going to argue about it uh and so that's why standard exists. We jokingly call it bike shed proof because you don't have time to argue about the particulars uh, when you've got a real thing to build. So David uh, Heinemeyer Hansen, affectionately known as DHH in the community, he opened an issue on Rails and the issue title is add, parenthetic, a very basic, end parentheses, RuboCop by default. And uh, first reply, Justin Co, a fellow that I met uh, at Rocky Mountain Ruby in 2011, I don't think I've seen him since, but I hope he's doing well, was to say, well, you're just going to, this is just going to be the mother to end all, mother to end all, the bike shed, the mother of all bike sheds, the bike shed to end all mother things. Oof. Anyway, it's been a long week. He pointed out standard would be better. Uh, I, I chimed in, hey, this is what standard's all about, yada, yada. Uh, Aaron chimed in. He said, hey, I would support doing standard. Then David tried standard, and he disagreed with a few things. And I don't think, look, if you have opinions and you care about the aesthetics of programming, you can't possibly fathom that you're going to use like some unconfigurable tool to style your code for you. And you're not going to have a few disagreements. I have disagreements. There's several things that standard does that I are just arguments with the community that I was like, I, you know what? I give up. I I'm just going to, I'm going to take the L on this one. And now we're going to have, uh, Oh, what's one that I hate in standard standard makes you put on multi-line statements. The period doesn't hang off of, the, the end of the line, it, it begins the next line. So the, the periods are all aligned, I guess. I really dislike that. I like, I like the period right off the end of the right parentheses. Call me crazy. So David texted me and he was like, Hey, 
here's these four or five, six things. I, I went through them one by one, but at the end of the day, I was like, you know, you're not going to agree with all of them. And so it's kind of like take it or leave it. And as we had a long conversation uh, just via text, and honestly, like where I got to is like, you know what? Come to think of it, having a default for Ruby on Rails that was like so strict that like this is the only blessed coding style, that sounds ridiculous. Like I'm the guy who made standard and I, I would never want to foist it uh, non-consensually on a programmer and tell them like your style has to be this way. And so that's where, um, you know, David uh, uh, landed there in that thread. He posted his own. I'll, I'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes uh, if I can figure out how to XML them. He posted a, a, a minimal RuboCop Rubo config that's going to serve as sort of the extension point. It'll ship with Rails, and then you'll, um, you'll be able to overwrite individual methods or in, individual rules inside of it. And as, as sort of the new baseline, he calls RuboCop Rails Omakase. Uh, which is a reference you will either get or not get. And that is, for the purposes of this conversation, fine. And then he wrote a post afterwards called A Writer's Ruby um, about about aesthetics and why they matter and why you should have the freedom to uh, have a house style, so to speak. So anyway, I, a lot of people contacted me when this was going on because it was seen as like yet another like David versus Justin on the internet and people like the drama and stuff and you know people have strong opinions about david and that's that's all fine uh but in this one you know i think he's right i think this is a great way to do it uh uh, you know i think having a starting point a default that gets people on the path of some kind of tool that provides a lot of linting safety and some measure of consistency this is like that's the friendlier thing for beginners it should be there you can turn it off with a command line flag and i'm sure a lot of people will um, but you know, telling everyone that they have to style it exactly per- particular way when they maybe don't understand the value of like why something like standard is good, that seems appropriate. So I'm on, uh, uh, I'm with David on this one. I think his blog post is good. You know, this is the right way to do it. Now, if I, if there's one thing I would ask, I think it would be really fucking rad if there was a tech tech, uh, standard style option for rails eight. This is all targeting rails 8.0 and up. Uh, cause then, you know, we'd have, we'd have higher adoption. People could opt into standard. I think that's what really matters here. So, uh, he was open to it, uh, but doesn't like the idea of having, uh, both a RuboCop binary and a standard binary because they'd be different. And then like, it would be difficult to document, you know, like this is the command you run to run your, run your, um, styling. So I'm going to, I might take a second pass and try to convince him of that. Um, but, but for now, you know, like I totally agree with where he, where he landed. Um, that was news. I guess I was tangentially in was tangentially related to that one. Uh, yeah, you know, mm, everything else I, was, I have to say is really just observations on this app that I'm building. So I'll talk about that a little bit. I'm realizing now I need sponsors so that I can break up this podcast and take breaks. Here I am sitting an hour and almost 20 minutes and I, uh, I could use some more water, but I already took my two sips of water and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to have a third sip of water, but you know what? I'm the captain of my own ship. Damn it. I'm going to have another sip of water. You're going to just have to find something to do for the next seven seconds of your life. So, so there. (laughs) 
totally worth it. Yep. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to power through, talk about my app. This app that I'm building, uh, I've affectionately called it Grog. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's like a private self-hosted Instagram clone, but just for one user. So basically like, I guess like, like a Flickr pro sort of thing. Um, but with an idea that the things you post are compatible with Instagram posts. So the single image or a single video, AKA a reel or a carousel of 10 images and videos at particular aspect ratios and post them to, uh, you know, uh, uh, there'd be an admin view that you have to be logged into. You can post them, you can drag drop them, you replace things, you can write a caption, all that jazz. And then a public facing site that, you know, will show all of those posts. And now this is the the reason for building this is I'm, I'm, I'm building this application for Becky, who has like a lot of videos and images she wants to share on Instagram without being sucked into Instagram all day. Uh, I wrote a gem called feed to gram, which can look at an RSS, an Atom feed, excuse me, uh, that, that, that has particularly, uh, uh, structured entries that have like, like a caption or no, a figure element that contain one or more images and, uh, some data attributes to tell me like, Hey, is this a real or carousel or a story or whatever? And so this rails app will, in addition to having a public facing website with like permalinks to, Hey, this is my post. Uh, it will also cross post that to Instagram with the URL back to the main page. And that way it's a, it's a form of posse. I'm going to write posse down, get that into the show notes, posse because it's an example of posting on your own site and syndicating elsewhere. Uh, and so I think that's just a healthier way to exist on this modern internet, especially in this diaspora of post Twitter land. Like the last thing I want to do is start creating content that I put a lot of time into and has meaning to me. And then just give it to Zuck <laughs> and like, you know, hope that they have good backups or, you know, but even then, even if they did, you're still at the mercy of the algorithm. And here, this is a way to like, you know, you own your content. It's on your website. That's the canonical place for it to live. And if it shows up in somebody else's feed by way of some, you know, fancy syndication machination like this, uh, great. They, they got to see your thing too. So that's, uh, that's how I've been rolling lately for my own stuff. And I'm just doing that for, for Becky. Uh, it's, it was the first time I've used active storage, which is a rails feature for, uh, you know, uploading large attachments, large, large, whatever they are files to something like S AWS S three or Azure or Google, a, a cloud host of, of files. And, uh, so far, my, my impressions are active storage is very mature, has a lot of great features. Uh, it's mostly invisible. Uh, the configuration is fine, but it's got ju- it's old enough now because it came out with Rails 5, I want to say, which I think was like 2016, maybe 17. Uh, it's old enough now that like it's got some weird, weird sharp edges. Like it has this idea of variance. Like you can make a variant of a file of an image in particular. And like a resize image for a thumbnail is the canonical example. Or make it black and white or sepia toned. Sepia toned? Sepia. Hmm. 
you can you do basic image processing and then save that variant so that you're not making the same thumbnail over and over again and you can track that variant and you can you know if you if a post has a certain uh, number of, of visuals or images on it you can like there's a scope for like with the attached photos or whatever and it'll track those variants and it'll 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 pull in a gigantic um includes like a left join in sql terms so that you're not having the n plus one problem of uh for every single post that you're showing you're you're hitting the database multiple times to go like hey what was that blob key that's out in s3 somewhere like it just it it creates this big polymorphic spread of where all the data is. And so as a result of that, the framework also has a responsibility of like helping you not, you know, shoot yourself in the foot with really inefficient querying as you, as you uh, iterate over all of your say photos and it's got these features, but like, man, like that's confusing. I have found that the, the, uh, um, that 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 auto include like the with attached photos thing actually doesn't work in 100 percent of cases and then weirdly even more weirdly is you can do the same operations for like pdfs and videos but instead of being called a, a variant there they are called a preview <laughs> and you give the preview a name and the uh functionally they're identical it's just under the covers they use different tools to analyze them right because like you can use like image magic or vips to analyze images, but you need like FFmpeg to analyze a video. So like that's like a implementation detail. It shouldn't be my concern as as the developer. And yet here I am having, you know, at first what was like, if image, then ask for the variant at 200 by 200. Oh, and else if video, then like ask for the preview with the same name at 200 by 200. Uh, but then like there, you know, the framework also provides like a catch-all name called a representation. Like, oh, it just ask for the representation called preview. And then like, you know, that works, for example. But then if you ask for it to like also include all these things with 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 attached, you know, visuals, it solves the N plus one problem for images, but not for videos. <laughs> so like, it's just like, that's what I mean. Rough edges. Like it's old enough now that it feels like it's probably at the time where it could use a good refactor. It could probably use some spring cleaning. And then my knock on rails for years has been a lot of these framework level features, especially the ones that came out in the mid 2015s were just like stuff that Basecamp needed. And, and, and were maybe had like, you know, one or two at most uh, users before they landed in the, in the framework. And then as the framework, you know, stagnated for a little while there for a few years those features didn't get a lot of use and then there was just only really ever like that one maintainer of the feature like action text does anyone after javon left does anyone maintain action text anymore like it's a rich text formatting thing for 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 uh, presumably right because like hey the, the their mail client needs 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 rich text uh, editing but like there were there, that's the kind of thing, right? This is like, it feels like Rails super popular. Ton, like all of the main cow paths in Rails are used by millions of people, I'm sure, across the world to build applications. But like some of the kind of more peripheral features like active storage and action cable, like I get worried when there's just a lot of sharp edges, especially as time marches on and, and uh, we suffer bit rot and stuff. So I don't know. That's my that's my initial review on active storage is it gets a uh, <laughs> thanks but uh. <laughs> so I'm fighting with it a little bit more than I want to. Um, there is an incredible thread on discourse of like how to actually survive using active storage and it's just like the op on this thread just like 
goes to school, takes you to school. And uh, uh, it's super useful. It's fascinating because it's a better introduction than the Rails guides are. It really tells you a lot. Uh, I'll, so I'll link to both those and you can tell me. Uh, other things, other thoughts. Uh, on the front end side of it, I'm still just like super damn awkward around two things. One, Tailwind. I love Tailwind. Tailwind's a great way to uh, uh, style websites because everything is super encapsulated. And so you you apply the style in the markup right at the, at the point closest to where it's relevant. And if you need to, um, instead of having some like goofy other style sheet file and you're trying to like balance them all and cascade everything just perfectly, but you never know, you know, the Peter Griffin and the blinds gif where like, it's kind of, uh, uh, you change one thing over here and now it's over there. Tailwind solves that like lock, stock and barrel. It solves that problem. It creates a new problem, which is like, now I've got all these mysterious looking classes and I'm copy and pasting them a lot. And that makes me feel dirty. Makes me feel real dirty. And that's, not great, but you can abstract that away, right? You could use a component library like view component, or you could just use like a lot of rendering partials, right? Of course, like if you're a react person, everything is a component. This is actually much simpler. And I think Tailwind's more react native, not react native, but like native to react in that way. But one place where it falls flat on rails is that form helpers don't have a super easy way to uh, stylize consistently. Uh, so if I'm saying like, you know, form with post and I say F dot input uh, text field, there's no easy way to style that except for onesie twosie, like, you know, uh, give a class and then give a lot of uh, style gunk and then, and then duplicating that. But for this concept of a custom form builder where you extend a form builder and then you, you define yourself all of the methods of all the different types of things that, you know, might uh, form field types, you know, not just text fields, but like email fields and password fields and number fields and all that. And uh, my friend Daniel Huss uh, uh, was inspired <laughs> to write a blog post about how to do that based on a, a technique and a, and a form builder that I'd wrote written for an internal application at testable. And I'm doing that here too, but it just doesn't feel right. Like it feels like there should be a better solution or maybe this, it feels like this should emerge into a gem to because, because, because rail ships with tailwind. So there should be a way to just have a pleasant experience. And if every rails app is going to have forms in it, especially early on, you know, before you end up having a lot of custom components, like if you're going to ship with tailwind and also have it be such a blessed path, like it should make it easier. So I don't know. Am I going to, am I going to contribute that solution? No. Am I going to gripe about it? Yes. That's what, that's, that's the breaking change promise right there. Um, also on the front end stimulus, I am convinced I was convinced as soon as I used it, the stimulus and HTMX, I will link both in the show notes. It's just like the right solution for most apps. Most of the time where you send all the HTML over the wire, this is what the web, this is my website. This is the stuff on the website. There are buttons. And then instead of JavaScript sprinkles, just being a file again, sort of like CSS that like lives over here. And I just try to like hook into the right moments and stuff. Uh, and bind to the DOM and re-render stuff into the DOM. Like it's just like no, this just lives in your markup. There's these attributes that you put, and they they will be responsible for tracking the actions and binding that th those actions to you know event handlers effectively. 
And if something needs to be re-rendered, then you've got Turbo, which can just re-render just that part of the page if necessary, or re-render the whole page. And now with Turbo 8, just like morph the, just that, just that, like a client side, just take the part of the DOM that would have changed after that action and then just replace just that part of the DOM. Uh, it feels like the right solution. I, philosophically, it feels like the right solution most of the time because the alternative is I build a big custom user interface. It is may as well be a fat native application, except it happens to be in a browser tab. And now I have to keep state straight both in the client and on the server. And I need to build a protocol between the client and the server. And the, the amount of work that that represents is an order of magnitude greater than just HTML over the wire with, you know, the HTML also informing how the interactivity should work so that the server can re-render in, in whole or in part the HTML in response to user behavior or in response to changes on the server side. Philosophically, that is the right answer. But man, in practice, I look away for three months, I come back to this stuff and I'm like, how the fuck do I do any of this again? And I forget all of it, which is usually not the sign of like a bad idea, but like something about the implementation is just like not quite right. Like I don't, maybe Turbo 8 will help at least the Turbo side, but like I don't, it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this easy to forget. Great APIs are harder to forget than this. And if, if I've got a single knock on rails, it's like, there's just so many magical like method names that are auto-constructed and not particularly introspectable because it's, you know, a dynamic language. Sometimes those, those, those are, um, dynamic dispatch methods where like, they're not actually defined. And so like, you can't actually introspect, like, what was the name of that? <sighs> I worry that we're never going to get, get over the hump on this one. Um, fortunately, so many companies are deciding that they're having a bad time with React that HTMX, uh, uh, another um, standalone library for, for accomplishing this, is really picking up steam. And maybe that'll just kind of eat the world and maybe that works. I haven't really used it. But yeah, I think about that a lot. So anyway, th those are those are the areas of greatest concern as I've gotten started on this application. Because, you know, you can imagine building an Instagram clone. You're going to have a lot of drag drop stuff Uh a lot of, lot of file upload stuff. Like there's just like a lot of front end stuff to want to do. Um, yeah, you need the carousel, of course, right? Everyone loves a carousel. 10 images and videos mixed together. All right. I'm going to check off the news box. Check. Last stuff. Ah, you know, mm, what have I been up to lately? I started playing uh, Harvest Moon 64. Not it, it came to Nintendo Switch's online service if you pay for the expansion pack, but I didn't. <laughs> uh, wait, no, I did. I did pay for that, but I also don't really use my Switch very much. I am much more interested in uh, uh, emulating it for some reason. So I'm emulating Harvest Moon 64. Uh, it's a farming simulator where you can also, uh, unfortunately, you can only play a gender normative boy and you can only have hetero straight relations. So if, if that's not your jam, then this is maybe like a little bit less appealing and nostalgic. And uh, they've made more inclusive games in both this series and uh, Story of Seasons and of course Stardew Valley later on. But like the greater, the pantheon of farming sims that also have a way to, you know, uh, simulate like a, a lifestyle where you, you make friends, right? In the community and you, maybe you have a romantic partner or two. Maybe you have a baby. 
Uh, you also, you can you know, raise cows and chickens and, and, and farm and stuff. But for me, the reason I like these farming sim games, that's all gravy. That's fine. Whatever. For me, I, you know, I have to min max everything. I want to see how much money can I make as fast as possible? How many days in a row can I, can I successfully water every single crop? How much money can I make in a single corn harvest in summer? These are the things that drive me to these games because they, uh, they present all of these asymptotic goals where I'm challenging myself to do better. And so one of the things that, that leads me to is I'm always looking for ways to like effectively hack or work around. Like, for example, the first Harvest Moon game, the nights don't end. Like, it's just like it becomes like 9 p.m. or something and it just stays dark. And you can keep playing the game for hours and hours. So each day in this game is like 10 minutes, less than that even. Uh, but I keep playing the game for, for, for hours on that first night because you're, when you first get to your farm, it's full of all this shit. It's got, you know, uh, leaves and, and trees and, 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 and rocks. And you can bust all that stuff up and you run out of energy, but then you can run to the, 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 the hot springs and sit there for a little while. And then you recover the energy and you go and you bust up some more axes and you save your state. Again, if you're emulating, you can save your state and come back to you the next day. And like, it might literally take five hours just to get through that first day. And then you save. And then on day two, now you've got a fully clear farm. And you're going to make a lot more money that way. So that's what I mean by min-max. So I've been playing Harvest Moon 64, and I realized that you can actually have um, get all of your tools upgraded to their max level on the very first day by just hiding inside of a building because, again, time doesn't pass when you're inside buildings. And I think it was the flower shop and the bar. Spoiler alert, if you haven't tried Harvest Moon 64 yet, which I realize only came out 25 years ago. Spoiler alert. You can just keep on using your axe or your, 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 your hoe over and over and over and over again. Uh, and then when you run out of energy, drink water at either the flower place or flower store or no, no, bait, not flowers or bakery, the bakery during the day or the, the bar at night and just keep drinking water and drinking water recovers stamina. I guess I, the, the science of these games is fascinating. I don't know who decided that water should restore any amount of stamina, much less an infinite amount if drunk infinitely. Uh, there's no, you know, I was impressed that this kid didn't have to relieve himself after drinking what seemed like 5,000 glasses of water in order to uh, shake his uh, water can, whatever it was, 1,200 times to level it up first to silver and then to gold tier. But that's what I did. So I, <laughs> I just like listened to music and just mashed that button uh, and got all my tools up to like uh, the max level on the first night. So that felt pretty good. <laughs> uh, now, of course, uh, similar to setting goals for myself, uh, as soon as I got all those tools to max and I saved the game, did I come back to the game and actually play and enjoy it late, late, uh, afterwards? Of course not. That might be as far as I get this time around. We'll see. <laughs> but I... I um, I will die knowing that at least I figured out how to get the tools up, leveled up quickly. Uh, even though I made no friends and I actually farmed nothing with them. Uh, another thing I've noticed lately is, uh, you know, I suck at YouTube. I have YouTube premium because I have no patience for ads. And when I make YouTube content, the only reason I want more subscribers is I want to be able to get to a thousand subscribers with whatever the minimum number of watch hours is, because that's the moment when I can join the YouTube monetization program as a, as a creator. 
not so that I can make money on YouTube because I, I know it would be peanuts, but because when you're a creator, you can actually mark videos as non-monetized and you can turn off ads. Because when I was doing Searles After Dark, uh, which I suppose I should link to now that I mentioned it, Searles After Dark was a 10-part series that I did teaching people code, teaching people, just coding with people, you know, building a thing. Uh, I realized only after cutting like five hour and a half long episodes of this thing that that there was no way for me to prevent other people from seeing ads on my content because I only have like 500 followers or subscribers. So I'm at like 700 now. So if you go find me on YouTube, just hit subscribe and just like let my videos play. <laughs> So I can do a thousand, not for your benefit necessarily, unless you do want to watch my videos, but so that the rest of the internet can enjoy commercial free serials content. Um, cause I just think like, ads suck. So anyway, I suck at, uh, using YouTube, uh, in part because the recommendation engine doesn't know what to do with me. I'll watch one thing and then I'll get a million of that thing. Uh, instead I, uh, I love hearing for feel free to email podcast at searles.co if you've got a youtube channel that you really love I, I i think i watch like a lot of the highly produced ones at this point i think I've, I've i've landed on a lot of those but i got recommended this one called bullets and blockbusters and i really like it i it as an 80s kid he covers a lot of um history of uh blockbuster movies as well as alternate histories like production snafus and not just like the story of like how a movie got made which is they, those can be interesting human interest stories, but also like, well, the original script for this would have gone this way, or here's how this film would have gone uh, when it had this original director and hearing those alternate histories of how the, like, like uh, Tarantino was in the running to do a new Star Trek movie after um, Star Trek beyond failed at the box office. Like what would a Tarantino Star Trek movie have been like that kind of thing? Uh, so yeah, that has been a great YouTube channel to kind of, I'm catching up on his backlog. Uh, watching a couple Apple TV shows. Watching Foundation, finally. Foundation season one. I heard it was really slow, and so then I watched it, and then it was really slow. But I'm almost done. I'm almost through season one, which felt like homework, which is actually, honestly, like the most faithful most faithful adaptation you could have to Isaac Asimov's Foundation books, because I tried reading those books, and those books also felt like homework. So... I don't know if that's like, if you can really knock it. Um, good job. You made a boring thing. Anyway, I hear that season two really picks up steam, but of course it's not going to make any sense if you haven't watched season one. So like, I, I'm glad that the show creators took the notes, but I, I can't imagine that Apple's going to make a whole lot of money on the backside of people who like, oh, hey, maybe, hey, maybe there's a YouTube channel for that. Like here's the 15 minutes of video that covers all five things that happened over 10 episodes uh, of season one. But it's got a cool vibe. And I, I usually, because um, I'm, I'm so broken in my heart, uh, every night I play a video game and I watch a show simultaneously so that I, I get enough stimulation to just stay wired. And, th and that's why I am the way I am. And I've been doing that since I was in high school. So I, I was working at, actually at high school, I was working at Blockbuster and EB Games, now GameStop, simultaneously, which meant I got five video and game rentals a week and also like a deep discount on games. Maybe that's where I started watching movies and playing games simultaneously. Uh, but yeah, Foundation, do I recommend it? No, uh, but it's good. It's very well produced. 
And if you, if, if you don't value your time, you should totally watch Foundation <laughs> as, as someone who doesn't value their time. Uh, Monarch is the other show I've been watching. It's, a, it's, a, it's the story behind the monsters, as if like, you know, like whenever there's a story behind something that's like really like kind of dim and, and uninteresting, I'm like, I didn't know there would be a story. And so I think the appeal of the show of like, uh, the people behind Godzilla's discovery and and keeping us safe from all of the kaiju titans or whatever. I'm like, oh, I mean, clearly they had to come up with something. Maybe it'll be interesting. I watched it and boy, it is. It is maybe the first miss uh, that that I've seen on Apple TV. Uh, I, I really enjoy a lot of Apple TV shows. Lots of good stuff. But boy, is it just like, and it's, not only is it kind of dreadful, but like it, it, there's a couple Japanese characters. And they speak perfectly fine Japanese and that's all interesting and stuff. But like the culture, like some of the cultural stuff just seems like really ham fisted, like, you know, uh, uh, marching into one's apartment and not taking their shoes off. Like I've never seen anyone do that ever. Right. <laughs> or filming in locations where there's no Gencon in the front of a, of a house. Like you, you walk in, it's just like a, all hardwood floors with no like, you know, uh, recessed area to place one's shoes and, and pop in like, like little things like that. There's just dozens of them. Like, these are Japanese actors <laughs> speaking in Japanese. Like no one thought no one had a, uh, an honest conversation with the director. So, all right. Do I recommend Monarch? No, but if you're, if you, if you just need to hit play on something, is it a show? Yes. That's the seal of, of approval from me. It is a show. Uh, also watching some Shorzy. Cause I heard letter Kenny's next season is going to be its last. And so Shorzy season two, which is a spinoff of letter Kenny. Uh, if you don't know what either of these things are comedies in Canada and Ontario, uh, I think most famous, not only for being irreverent and, and, and funny humor, kind of like the, the Ottawa equivalent of, uh, uh, always sunny in Philadelphia, maybe, uh, but also less, less plot coherence. Um, but also closer to sketch comedy, to be honest. But also uh, the, what they do is they have all these little phrases and, and jargon from their area, some real, some made up, uh, and, and the characters are all over the top. So anyway, I like Shorzy. And that's about it. I think that just about does us. I, this is the part, just so you know, I'm checking off the podcast stuff I like. Checkbox. And I'm now onto the mailbag where I just have no mail because I never told anyone to email me until now. So shoot me an email podcast at surls.co. And, uh, if you email me, I will read it. And if I make another one of these version two, if you will, uh, I, I will read it on the show and then I will talk about it. So that's all. That's all we got. That's all she wrote. I hope you have a wonderful, uh, day, week, month, quarter, etc. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for mowing the lawn with me. Or, or doing the laundry with me or whatever it is that you're doing. I hope somebody was mowing the lawn because then they'd feel, oh my, how do you know? And the answer is I used to mow the lawn and then I moved to Florida and now my lawn is like three inches wide. Anyway, that's all I got. You have a good one. Um, yeah, get out of here.